This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Ten years ago this month, a small group of young radicals declared, We are the 99%, and set up camp in Zuccotti Park in Manhattan's financial district. They called themselves Occupy Wall Street. They focused on challenging, skyrocketing inequality and entrenched corporate power. But instead of a few people protesting for a few days, the movement exploded into thousands of encampments outside city halls and in city centers across America and around the world, lasting in some cases for months, transforming the left in America and giving rise to a new generation of political activists. Then they were shut down, and Occupy was over. The nation is publishing a special issue assessing the legacy and lessons of the Occupy movement, perhaps the most unexpected success of the left in living memory, but also one with some significant flaws and weaknesses. For comment, we turn to two people who teach labor and urban studies at the City University of New York who've been studying Occupy, Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce. Along with Penny Lewis, they've written the lead piece in the nation's special issue. Ruth Melkman is the author, most recently, of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. Hi, Ruth. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And Stephanie Luce's books include Labor Movements, Global Perspectives, and Fighting for a Living Wage. Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. You guys have been studying the Occupy movement for a long time. What was your method? What what have you been looking for? Stephanie? So we initially did a study uh, right when Occupy started. Uh, We began to look at what was going on in the park, and we launched a survey of people at the May Day 2012 March associated with Occupy Wall Street. And by that time, actually, people had already been kicked out of Zuccotti Park, but they were still actively engaged in Occupy Wall Street um, working groups. So we did the survey, um, talking to hundreds of people there at the at the march. And then we also did in-depth interviews with key leaders in the Occupy movement. And we selected people based on uh, who was involved in different kinds of working groups within the park, within the Occupy movement, uh, the labor working group, the media, the tech teams, and so forth. So um, we talked to 25 people at that time. And then we've gone back 10 years later uh, on this anniversary to talk to people in this past year about what have they been up to in these past 10 years? What are the lessons they've learned? Uh, what do they take from the Occupy experience? Lots of people have lots of ideas about what Occupy did wrong, but let's start with what they did right, what they accomplished, what we can learn from their success. Maybe we should start with the tactic of occupying public space in urban centers and staying, staying for a long time. This wasn't a demonstration or a protest march or a teach-in or a political campaign. Of course, there have been lots of other kinds of occupations, student radicals occupying the school president's office, protesters occupying congressional offices, and of course, the grandfather of all occupations in America, the auto workers' occupation of the GM plant in Flint for 44 days in 1936 and 1937, and lots of other countries where workers have occupied factories for a long time. But but this was different Uh, Let's talk about the significance of occupying public space. Ruth. Well, this came in the aftermath of some similar occupations around the world. 
Tahrir Square in Cairo, the Indignados occupations in Madrid and Barcelona, and and the occupation, um, sorry, the Occupy Wall Street crowd were very aware of that global chain of events. And in fact, the um, form that the occupation took replicated. I think that it was Occupy Wall Street three years after the meltdown of the financial system in 2008 and the anger that the population as a whole and progressives in particular had toward Wall Street at that time. And um, Wall Street was didn't really pay the price of the meltdown that it created. And the many people in the broader population did pay that price. So it really struck a chord with the wider public. And so that was really important. And the tactic of physically occupying a space also was, as you said, not unique, but very powerful in that anyone could come and check out what was happening at Zuccotti Park. Um, the people who stayed there for long periods of time built very strong relationships with one another, created a whole mini society in the park. They offered education, health care, food, um, sleeping, obviously. So it, it really was a kind of prefigurative moment, too, of trying to build, you know, on a small scale, the kind of society people hoped might exist in the future. And the other big thing was uh, we are the 99%, a very simple claim and a Turns out one that had tremendous resonance. Stephanie, let's talk about that. Yeah, a number of uh, the people we've interviewed said that that in part was part of the appeal that they felt like it kind of spoke to everyone. It spoke to the issues they were concerned about. The people came from different areas of work or different interests, environmentalists, labor, um, feminist movements, anti-racist movements. But the framing of We Are the 99% left it open for everyone to, to feel it was their movement. That included some on the right as well. In the early days, there were, you know, libertarian voices out there and there were, you know, voices from across the spectrum. So that was an issue to work through. But it created a sense that um, of naming the enemy that hadn't happened since the 2008 crash. You know, that the right wing came out after the 2008 crash, naming the enemy as, you know, people that worked for the public sector, people that were drawing a pension, people that were poor and bought a house. So this was flipping that narrative and saying, no, the enemy is actually the 1%. And Occupy was remarkable also for its internal rules. It was a leaderless movement with what they called a horizontal structure. That was quite an achievement, Ruth. Well, yes, and that replicated, again, what had gone on elsewhere, like the indignados in Spain, for example, had the same aspiration of a horizontalist movement with no hierarchy. They, they called it leaderful, not leaderless, but the fact that they refused to identify individuals who might be sort of peeled off and turned into spokespeople or something like that for the media was very important because it made it impossible to focus on the foibles of some individual or individuals. And instead, the public and the media had to confront the reality that there were lots and lots of people doing this. The horizontalism was really important because it, it reflected a kind of disillusion with conventional forms of politics and the idea that bureaucracy was something really dangerous and to be spurned and that, you know, individuals who had too much power in a movement were problematic and so on. Although in the end, as it exploded into a much larger occupation than anyone expected, the horizontal structure also had some problematic aspects in that it was really hard to run a meeting with thousands of people at once. We'll get to that in a minute. 
it exploded. And that was another one of the remarkable and, as you say, completely unexpected things about it. You know, it's one thing to have big Occupy camps in Los Angeles or San Francisco where there's hundreds of activists or full-time organizers. But Occupy was all over the place in the United States and all over the world. My favorite report in the nation at the time was written by Mike Davis, who traveled to small towns in the Imperial Valley uh, east of San Diego. He wrote about Occupy El Centro. This is a town no one's ever been to. You know, There were 40 or 50 people in the Occupy camp there. Mike wrote, quote, I went to El Centro thinking that I might find a simple copy of the Wall Street protest, a copycat action unlikely to grow in the hostile climate of Imperial County. What I discovered, in fact, was a desert flower brought to blossom by a combination of long cultivation, drawing on a long activist tradition, a lot of sunlight, he says, dialogue via social media, and equally important, the existence of a local greenhouse that is a physical space for meeting and interaction, how do you understand the tremendous explosion of Occupy into all of these smaller, unexpected places across America? Yeah, I, I think it's extraordinary. What we know from social movements is that a lot of times people try things and they fail, and it's mostly failure. Um, and in fact, in New York City, just a few months before, people had occupied another section of Wall Street in a, something called Bloombergville, and that only lasted a week or so and then was kind of dispersed. So why did this particular one take off so much in New York and then spread around the country? Uh, I think we'll never really know that. But I think some of the factors um, that we've named, which is that it was open to the 99%. It did speak to the pent-up anger that people had had since the 2008 crisis. It was tapping into the energies of young people that had kind of come of age in that crisis, had been thinking they had been doing everything right. And you know, we're inheriting this world of, you know, chaos and, and economic hardship, whether they themselves were experiencing it or their parents, right? What you just read from Mike Davis actually, you know, made me think also even of last summer, and we saw the same thing happen with Black Lives Matters protests yes. all over the country um, in the same kind of unexpected ways. And so I think, you know, it's hard to predict which are the ones that are going to succeed and which ones won't. But there were certainly a lot of factors that came together at the right time. Ruth, do you want to add? Yeah, well, in the quote from Mike Davis, you mentioned, I and mean, he mentioned um, social media. And I think that was a key ingredient. It, there was also conventional media that, that amplified the Zuccotti Park occupation and made people all over the country, all over the world aware of it. And some of them chose to set, start their own occupations. But social media, this was one of the first major movements in which um, the activists themselves communicated over social media, the first in the United States. The same thing happened in Egypt in the Arab Spring. Today, 10 years later, the police and other state agents are very adept at social media themselves, but that was not the case in September 2011. And so this was a huge resource and an advantage that the occupiers had and that they exploited very, you know, imaginatively and successfully. And that, of course, also helped spread the word around the country and the world. Of course, lots of people have been thinking ever since Occupy shut down about the limitations, the problems, the weaknesses, the failures. What do you consider the most significant, Ruth? Well, I'm not sure it's a failure exactly, but in terms of a limitation, um, the strength of Occupy was also its biggest weakness, which was its focus, its unrelenting focus on class inequality. We are the 99% and relative lack of attention to 
racial oppression, gender oppression, the oppression of sexual minorities. There were people involved in Occupy who pointed that out while it was underway and tried to address that problem. But in general, that didn't really um, ever succeed in, in any big way. And so you know, that was one of the big limitations. I do think that since then, many of the activists involved continue to be involved in other movements, including things like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and so on. So they've kind of made up for it since, but that was a limitation at the time. And Stephanie, what's at the top of your list? You know, one of our interviewees, Reverend Mike Alex, said that it was a way for powerless people to gain power quickly. And I think it, it that's what direct action does. That kind of action will get attention and will uh, create an upsurge, but it is not sustainable. And people could not sustain life in the park between the police presence, um, under, undercover disruptions, um, and just trying to sustain daily life and also trying to service the people that came into the park and feed people and, and uh, house them and provide services just was not sustainable. So I think, you know, for most people, they saw that it needed to transition into other forms, taking uh, building power, whether it was through electoral power or through unions or through other kinds of um, momentum building, but it couldn't, it had to transition into another form. And Occupy was also criticized for having a lack of concrete demands. Now, Occupy itself proclaimed that was one of their great achievements. They did not have a legislative agenda. They were not supporting particular candidates. What do you think of the criticism that they lacked concrete demands and that that was a, a serious flaw? I mean, at the time, it meant that anybody could bring their own grievances into the movement, regardless of what those were. So it became a kind of multiplier of uh, activism and energy. They were also extremely disdainful of electoral activity, partly because this was a generation that the, most of the occupiers were relatively young, and they were the same generation that had enthusiastically supported Obama in 2008 and were extremely disappointed in the results. They didn't really deliver on the promises of hope and change that many of them had been attracted to. And so that made people, you know, quite suspicious of an electoral agenda. Of course, the very success of Occupy changed that later, and many of the occupiers went on to be big supporters of Bernie Sanders, for example, as well as some of them candidates themselves for local and state office. So things have evolved in the last 10 years, but at the time, that was a very uh, central plank of the, of the movement. And Stephanie, we've also heard a lot of criticism of what some people call the tyranny of structurelessness. Let's talk about that. So I think that that also has a double-edged sword because I'm um, going back to the early idea of the horizontalism. It was a way for people to come in and, and engage and feel like they were part of it. Um, but that kind of work takes a lot of training. It's it's a skill that has to be developed and it has to be adjusted to the size of the group. So when something like that happens, there are leaders because there are people that come in with political sophistication, with political tools. They know how to work the system or disruptors have a lot of power in that kind of system as well. And so I think people have learned, you know, a number of the activists that we talk to that still feel fairly committed to horizontalism say that they, they might do some things differently, still keep it as participatory and ho mostly horizontalist, but structure it so that it was based on inclusion instead of trying to exclude negative voices. And finally, we need to talk about the legacy of the Occupy movement for us today. Ruth, you mentioned briefly that the Bernie Sanders campaign is very much a kind of a response to the Occupy movement. Bernie Sanders, of course, has been around for a long time, much before 2011. But 
I don't think he would have vaulted into the, you know, a major presidential candidacy the way he has um, since then, had if it were not for Occupy and the kind of ideas that it validated. So, you know, there, there were many people around who had critiques of capitalism and awareness of skyrocketing inequality and all the rest. But what Occupy did was make those things mainstream and give them traction with the everybody who participates in the political conversation. And that really was something unprecedented in our lifetimes, I think. And Stephanie, what do you see as the most significant parts of the legacy of the Occupy movement? I think what happened was there was a shift in consciousness amongst the left at the time. You know, some lots of people were new to politics through Occupy, but many were seasoned or had been around even for you know a while and been really kind of demoralized by the anti-war movement in the early 2000s. And I think what this did was to shift their confidence to say, like, we actually can build power. We can get the world's attention. Um, we should take ourselves more seriously and dig in and, and take this on full time. And I think it laid the foundation foundation for that confidence going in all of these different directions, whether it was Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, Bernie Sanders, DSA, like saying we're gonna, we're gonna go in our areas of work and we're gonna we're gonna really contest for power in a real way. The nation's special issue on the 10th anniversary of the Occupy movement is out this week. It includes a piece, The Transformation of Protest, written by Ruth Melkman and Stephanie Luce, along with Penny Lewis, who wasn't able to join us today. You can read it online now at thenation.com. Ruth and Stephanie, thanks so much for your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having us. This episode of Start Making Sense was developed as part of a collective of podcasts brought together to explore the legacy of Occupy around the 10-year anniversary. You can hear other analyses on the impact of Occupy on Jacobin's podcast, The Dig, and Descent's podcast, Belabored. The producing partners for this project are the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation's New York office and the New School's Milano program. We encourage you to learn more and listen to some of the other episodes by visiting rosalux.nyc slash occupy. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 